Greetings and salutations. This is the Accelerated Culture Podcast, the rise of alternative music in the 80s and beyond. In this podcast, we aim to walk through an often ignored bit of music history. My co-host Trey and I will explore how new waves stormed the airwaves in the early 80s and gave way to the rise of alternative music. Well, hello and welcome to Accelerated Culture. I'm Lori. And I'm Trey. And we have a spooky episode planned for you today. But uh, before we do, how's everything, Trey? Everything's fine. It's, just, it's hard to believe it's been a month since we last taped. Yeah, it's been quite a while. So we did miss an episode there thanks to Hurricane Ian. And I understand that that affected your internet access. It totally did. It was real, real shippy for about a week, week and a half. The cable kept going out and it's, the hurricane never really got to us. We got the outer edge of it, but it, it, you know, it leveled South Carolina, basically. And I think we were just kind of getting the, you know, I think the, our technical issues were risen from there. For those of you that don't know, Augusta, Georgia sits on the border of Georgia and South Carolina. So that might make a bit more sense there if you know that little geography lesson there yeah, okay there you go, everybody all right so trey what are we doing for this episode today we are are we, are we gonna call it halloween hits or just spooky songs or there's a little of each in there so yeah yeah so we have decided being that it is a both of our favorite month right I, i'm guessing october is your favorite month as well you know who I am and what I like. I'm just, you know, I like Halloween, but I'm not bonkers over it like so many people think I would be. Okay. All right. Well, I'm I am. I am <laughs> I am the the bonkers person and I love October. I love fall. I love Halloween. So Trey and I have chosen for this episode songs that are of a Halloween theme. Now they could be about Halloween, they could be about something spooky or otherwise just have kind of a Halloween vibe. The original plan was we were gonna restrict it to 80s, but Trey, I see you kind of have extended a little bit into 90s and that's totally okay. So Trey, you and I had some back and forth on this and we looked at a lot of playlists that other people have done. Mm -hmm. And some people have included some songs that perhaps in the name sounds like it would be a Halloween song, but it's really not. Case in point would be Zombie by the Cranberries. Is that, oh yeah, that's a classic example right there. That's probably the biggest uh, offender in that area, I guess you could say, though it's not a bad song. It's just not about zombies, you know, flesh-eating zombies. Right, exactly. It's about the, the troubles in Ireland. Right. Another one that came up was The Ghost in You by the Psychedelic Furs. Right. Just because it has the word ghost in it doesn't mean it's about a ghost. Well, you know, I found opposing views on that online. Some people were swearing, oh, this is about a ghost. And other people, you know, other articles I found were going, this is completely not about a ghost. It's about, I guess he misses a girl, which is, you know, I don't know. Well, it's like, you know, the ghost in you, the, the spirit in you kind of mm -hmm. thing. 
but I, I imagine those people that think it's literally about a ghost are also the same people that think uh, in the air tonight is literally about somebody drowning. You know, the idea of metaphor is lost on some people. I never knew about that until about three years ago. And I was like, what the heck? Where does this come? Because they're literally listening to the words and they're, oh, you told me you were drowning. It must be about a drowning. The idea of metaphor is completely lost on some people. I see. Okay, so my black cat is out. That is our mascot for the episode. And uh, I guess we'll get started. All right, let's go. All right. So the first song on my list is obviously going to be very familiar to most of you from 1984. It's the theme song from the film Ghostbusters by Ray Parker Jr. even two-year-old kids are probably well aware of this song it's a fun song it's a fun music video you know had a bunch of cameos in the video from a bunch of stars including a young pre-politics al franken really senator al franken yes he is in the video that always cracks me up every time i see him in there because his career really went off in a completely different direction after that. Oh, it sure did. I just remember, did he do any other acting back then? I remember him from his SNL days, but. Uh, it was mostly SNL, Franken and Davis. I don't, I can't think of any like film roles or anything that he might've had, but you know. So this was like the huge blockbuster in 1984, Ghostbusters. I remember seeing it a bunch of times. I absolutely loved it. I've got the whole film memorized. Me too. Of course, everybody was comparing me to Annie Potts. Janine. I can totally see that. You even kind of sound like her a little too, which isn't a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. So well, I, I'm flattered. She's a good actress. So I'm yeah, flattered. You got your hair red. I could see that. You know, and then we could get you to maybe dye your hair and put you in a turtleneck and you could be Lewis Tully. <laughs> and get me, what was he wearing little, what kind of glasses was he wearing? He, he had little horned rimmed glasses. Yeah. Okay. Not too dissimilar <laughs> from yours. <laughs> So one thing I do remember about this song, and uh, Trey, you might remember this too. Ray Parker Jr. actually got sued. Yes. So if you listen to I Want a New Drug by Huey Lewis in the News, Mm -hmm. there definitely is a similarity there. Ray Parker Jr. was sued and he did lose. So he did have to pay some royalties to Huey Lewis in the News. I found that silly. But the similarity is there, though. You can you can definitely tell. I think it was just random chance. I don't think whoever wrote that, probably Huey Lewis's guitar player, his name just left my mind. But I don't think he heard that. Oh, let's write. Let's, you know. I mean, like you said, that was the movie of summer of 84. It was everywhere. The song was everywhere. It, it got to the point of being annoying. I had the soundtrack album. I got my parents got it for me on a family trip to Atlanta and I was all into the Thompson twins song and the, mm. you know, 
It's, it's a great soundtrack. It's a great movie. What else can I say? Well, to this day, you can't say who you're going to call. Right. Everybody, somebody... knows, yeah, everybody knows what to say back to that. And I'm yeah. pretty sure we can go to Target right now and get a Ghostbusters costume and walk out there of here and buy it. Well, so that's one franchise I'm glad is still around. I, 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 I'm glad that people are still into the whole Ghostbusters thing. Did you watch the new one? Yes, I loved it. I haven't seen it. I heard it's okay-ish. I loved it because I think that they really played appropriate tribute to Harold Ramis. And I, I, I really was genuinely very, very sad when Harold Ramis died. I was too. He, but people don't realize how much of a writer he was more than he was just an actor. He was so involved in so many of these great 80s comedies. Yep. Stripes, National Lampoon, yep. Groundhog Day. So um, what is your first song for our list, Trey? No one is going to know this song. I didn't. You were probably, yeah, you were like, what in the hell is this? This song is called Darkest Side of Night. It's most often credited to Metropolis. can't even find if this was a real band or not there there's so little info on this out there it, 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 it's unreal but this song is from the score which I, I can't even find if this was a real band or not there there's so little info on this out there it, 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 it's unreal but this song is from the score to friday the 13th part eight jason takes manhattan I really, you know, I picked this song because there were so many songs like this in 80s horror movies by these bands that did one song and were on the soundtracks of these movies. And a lot of them are actually pretty good songs. And it, uh, I've tried to find info about that whole thing, even online. Like, what, why were they doing this and not licensing some other popular band? to do a song for the movie, but this one's, this one just sticks out from, this is my favorite of the Friday the 13th films, which I get a lot of flack for, but this, I, I just love this one. And this song has always stuck with me. Well, okay. I never heard it before. <laughs> never in my life. It kind of seems to me like, you know, a lot of times for these soundtracks that they'd get together some session musicians. Exactly. And that would be a lot cheaper than having to pay for a well-known band. I was very surprised. And then when I listened to this tray, I even messaged you and said, is this the right song? Yeah. Because this did not strike me as the kind of music that you would listen to, but it's from Jason takes Manhattan. You said, you know, I went and saw the movie on a rainy Tuesday in summer of 89. And I had, I was bored. 
it was like two o'clock in the afternoon. I don't know where my girlfriend was. She was probably at work. It was the summer I graduated high school and I just was looking for something to do. So I went to the theater and saw Jason Takes Manhattan. There was like me and four other people in the theater. And for some reason, I sat there and watched the entire end credits. I guess I was trying to kill five more minutes where I could go back out into the world and be bored some more. But it always just stuck in my head. I was going to say what you were saying about the about the various musicians that played on it. I've seen it at varying times. There's been different uploads of it on YouTube. And I've seen each of those names credited to the solely to the song themselves at varying points in time. And to that band Metropolis, of which I maybe they were actually a band. I always figured it was one of those sort of pseudo hair metal bands that were out there back there in that era that never really made it more than, you know, a couple of shows and got approached to do this, luckily. Yeah, it's very possible. But anyways, I just, it, like I said, it always just stuck with me. It's, it's an interesting song. The lyrics are ridiculous, but the music itself is actually pretty good. The only song, the only Jason song I can, I think it was in one of the Jason movies, was uh, He's Back, The Man Behind the Mask. Was that Alice Cooper? Oh, was it? Yeah, it was. Wasn't, it? wasn't that 90 or 91, though? Might have been. Might have been. I, I, that's the only one I can think of. And that was that was kind of a jam. That one was okay. Well, the, there was a couple of other songs, some slashers I was looking at. And the only other real recognizable one was Dockin'. And I, I didn't feel, I felt like that was too way out of left field for our show. Okay, fair enough. My next one, uh, I went into my CD collection and one of the bands that I listen to a lot is the Cocteau Twins. And I chose their 1984 song, Persephone. Tell everybody I said what I said when you told me you were picking this song. I don't remember. It was something about the lyrics, right? I said, how on earth did you know what she was singing about? <laughs> well, the title of the song was kind of a giveaway. Persephone, obviously, the Greek goddess of the underworld. Mm -hmm. So Cocteau Twins, as you know, Trey, are Elizabeth Fraser, Robin Guthrie, and Simon Raymond. Mm-hmm. And Liz Fraser is really known for what's called glossolalia, where you're singing a lot of nonsense words and syllables that sound, you know, like words. Uh, another one that does this a lot is Lisa Gerard of Dead Can Dance. Yes. So I don't know what lyrically, if she's saying anything at all, what that might be. But the fact that, you know, this is, named after the goddess of the underworld and also it does really kind of evoke a little bit of a dark spooky vibe when you listen to it oh it totally does now i a few years back uh, i have a, a cocteau twins t-shirt that i wear often 
And this lady stopped me in a bar and she had to be maybe my age, maybe a few years younger, but not older. And she was going on and on. She was really smashed. <laughs> she was going on and on about how much she loves Cocteau Twins, especially that song Purse Phone. Purse Phone. Don't you know that song Purse Phone? And it took me, it took me like two or three minutes to put together Persephone. Not purse phone. And she'd had a few. Give her a break. <laughs> and I remember the purse that she had. She had this really large, really expensive handbag. And maybe, I don't know if I, I focused on that because of this purse phone thing. Yeah. So if, if this lady is listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is now forever going to be associated with this song. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if I actually heard from her? No, it wouldn't. No, thank you. <laughs> if you're out there, lady from the bar in Chicago, um, please don't reach out. <laughs> I just, you know, the Cocteau Twins, they are a great band. And for years, I, I, I thought it was Swedish or something along that line. mixed with English here and there. I had no idea what was, you know, I first heard them when I was like 18. So 88. And I was just like, this is great. But what on earth is going on with the with the lyrics here? Robin Guthrie wrote most of it, didn't he? Did he? She have, how much input did she have in there? That's a good question. I don't know. I, you're right that he did write a lot of it. Speaking of songs that create a mood, what's your next song? My next song is the theme from Halloween 2. can you do a, a show about 80s horror spooky songs and not include the Halloween theme we had a local radio station here in the early early 80s and then in the weeks leading up to Halloween they would actually play the theme as a as a song in normal rotation hmm, that's interesting I think back now they can't have been the only radio station on the planet doing that at Halloween but it's just such an iconic theme song and like we said about Ghostbusters, you can play it and virtually anybody's going to know exactly what it is. You know, there's no mistake in it. And this was written by John Carpenter? Yes, he scored 90% of the music in all his movies was done solely by himself. Oh, wow. Something I don't think a lot of people know to this day. So I'm a little disappointed that you didn't pick Lori's theme off of the same movie. <laughs> You know, I, when you said that, I was like, do what? I, had, I didn't know there was a piece of music actually called that. Oddly enough, the Halloween score is one of his only full scores. I've never listened all the way through. When I was a teenager, I just thought it was great. And I thought it was even cooler that this fantastic car director, you know, had his own synthesizers and he was he was doing his own music for his movies. I just thought it was wonderful. All right. I don't think there's much else we could say about that one. You know, it, it stands for itself. 
just even if play a few bars of it and people know what it's from. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, you know, Trey, we cannot do a list without <laughs> including some Duran Duran. This is going to become some sort of recurring joke with the show, I think. Right? Yeah. So I chose Nightboat off of their first album, 1981. Let's listen. Standing on the edge of the key, no lights flashing on the water for me. Fogging my mind, darkens in my eyes, silently streaming for a distant sound. Let's talk about Nightboat. I just remember seeing this video for the first time way back when, when some chick gave me a VHS tape of all the videos and being, this is from out of nowhere. Though I liked yeah. it. Yeah. You know. So the video didn't really get as much airplay in the United States. And so I didn't know about it until my best friend and I rented uh, the, the VHS video album and we saw it on there. So the video is basically a zombie video. Right. They're in Antigua and they're basically attacked by zombies at night. And there's a boat full of zombies. The video was actually filmed in May of 1982, which interestingly enough was several months before they started Michael Jackson's thriller video. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this actually predates thriller, but I guess in, in 82, this was kind of a theme. I guess uh, zombie zombie videos were in the video, like many Duran Duran videos was directed by Russell Mulcahy. So I guess it's an homage to Italian director Lucio Fulci's film zombie, which I have not seen. Have you? I think they're referencing zombie two with this one, which is set on an island. Oh, okay. All right. So, so I'm adding that, adding that to my October download list. Probably both of them, but zombie two itself is set on an island. Okay. Yeah, they are, he's definitely referencing Lucio Fulci. Cool. And then I think, as I pointed out when we were talking about the Rio album, this is almost the polar opposite of Rio. Rio takes place on a boat. It's all sunshine and bright colors and, and positive and uplifting. Nightboat takes place on a boat and it is dark and spooky and the band is being attacked by zombies. In particular, I think uh, Roger Taylor is doing some very good acting if he is acting, <laughs> because I kind of suspect that for Roger, maybe the, the zombies coming after him was probably evocative of the fans that at this point were starting to really get on. To, yeah. Want, want, want to touch their idols and get a piece of them right. and you know there's that scene in sing blue silver where roger and one of the other band members is in the back of a limo and the the teenage girls are surrounding the limo and they're shaking the car and you can see roger is so upset he looks like he wants to cry yeah roger was a very private person and so 
he he really was not of all all five of the band members i think he was the one that was least cut out for that so i can kind of see maybe that might have been something he was drawing on in the video or maybe there's a parallel there between the zombies and like the mindless fans that were chasing after the band or maybe i'm reading too much into it <laughs> was this was this was this a video before rio and they're chronologically in the order of their videos they shot them both at the same time well i was just meaning is this did they do night boat and then the rio video came out so they were you know sort of in that order i think night boat came out after the rio video all right i could be wrong so the other thing, and, and I know I had to cut off the beginning because the, the first like two minutes of the song are instrumental, but it's really kind of cool with the intro with Andy's guitars and they kind of have a, an effect on it where it almost sounds like the chiming of a clock. Mm -hmm. And if you listen very carefully, there's nine chimes. So the clock is chiming. It's 9 p.m. Oh, wow. I would yeah. have never in a million years noticed that. How did you? Yeah. Did you notice that yourself? I'm a little obsessive and tend to count things. Wow. <laughs> it, it comes along with uh, being a computer science professor, I think. Wow. I think once, we tend to spot patterns and things. Once we get done, I'm going to go play that song immediately and listen to that. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. Okay. So your next song, Trey, I'd never heard of either. How you never heard of this one? No. It's Party Time by 45 Grave. was done for the 1985 zombie movie Return of the Living Dead, which was somewhat of a parody and somewhat serious in tone as well. Is that the one with the girl is always stripping off her clothes and running around naked? Well, she strips off her clothes once and then basically stays naked the rest of the movie. But yeah, you can say that. That was, I think, the second zombie film I'd ever seen in my life. The first being the original Night of the Living Dead. Wow. And I just remember the whole thing. It was just, I didn't know if it was supposed to be campy and over the top or what. Oh, totally. They were, they were goofing around and having fun with this one. Yeah. I've been to Halloween parties where they've like projected this on the wall and it definitely sets the vibe because that movie is just so hilarious. But now there's more than one version of this song too. I've noticed. I was getting ready to bring that up. And the original version is a very, very, very dark in its content song. It's basically about the murder of a young girl at a party. I think we probably ought to be careful what we say about that there. But yeah, it's, it's very dark. They redid it for the movie in a more lighthearted tone, I guess, to more suit the movie. And that's the one that we just played, the zombie version. Exactly. I was just going to say they pretty much considered the first American goth or death rock band. They have more of a punk rock edge to them. 
they're still going to this day. And if you haven't heard of them, you should definitely check them out. They are a great, great band and they're very tongue in cheek and campy. Whole lot of fun to listen to. Cool. All right. So uh, for my next one, reaching all the way back to 1980. I was a teenage werewolf by the cramps. Great song, great band. I never really got into the cramps that much. I had a friend that was really into them. So, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of, most of my exposure came through him, but this seems like such a fun song for this time of year. It is a parody of the 1957 horror film of the same name, which starred Michael Landon. You know, they're just one of those bands, you know, people are either really, really, really into them or they're just sort of passive about them. But I've never met anybody that doesn't like them at all. There's definitely more of like a rockabilly vibe to them, you know. Oh, yeah, they they they, they created that whole they brought that into, you know, created that whole thing going there in the late 70s into the 80s. And that, that whole punkabilly thing that's going on now, I think, mm-hmm. is you know, solely due to the cramps. Well, and then they kind of blazed the trail for a few other bands that were really big in the 80s, most notably the Stray Cats. Oh, of course. Okay, so what's your next song, Trey? My next song is Pet Cemetery" by the Ramones from the movie The Same Name written by Stephen King. Under the octopus with the steamboats Ancient goblins Come at the grand light making a sound The smell of death is all around And at night when the cold wind blows No one cares, nobody knows I don't wanna be buried in a big cemetery I don't want to live my life again I'm a huge Stephen King fan. Got into him when I was about 13. Loved him every ever since. And Stephen King is a metalhead, but he's also a huge fan of the Ramones. And I, you know, I don't really know how this came to be, but they, you know, agreed to agreed to do a song for the movie. And it's such a great song. I know how it came to be. How did it come to be, Lori? Oh, well, Stephen King is actually a huge Ramones fan. Mm -hmm. And they were playing a tour of New England. So he invited the band to his home in Bangor, Maine. And during the visit, Stephen King handed D.D. Ramone a copy of his novel Pet Cemetery. And then D.D. 
retreated into the basement with his bass, came back an hour later with the lyrics to Pet Cemetery. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this was actually prior to the movie being made. Yeah, because I think the book came out, what, 82, 83? That sounds about right. The movie was released, and it was released two days after my birthday in 1989. I actually saw it that weekend. That was one of my birthday presents. Oh, that's cool. So by this time, I feel like the Ramones were kind of in their last last legs, right? I mean, they were on their way out at this point, right? They were getting real off and on. I think they had been on some sort of a hiatus there for a while. And they'd done some sort of greatest hit sing there in 88, I think it was. I Want to Be Sedated mm-hmm. started getting some airplay on MTV. I, that was in 88. And it kind of, I think it started getting them a little more back in the, back in the spotlight again. I'm, you know, I don't really know much about their history. I know there was a lot of infighting. I know, you know. Right drug use personality conflicts i think um i think dd was more interested in kind of going off in like a little bit more of a heavy metal direction than the rest of the band if i remember correctly was it dd that put out a rap album in 89 one of them put out a, a oh, rap album that's right that's that was, right i forgot about that that was horrible but <laughs> so if i'm not mistaken trey the greatest hits album that you mentioned this might have actually been on that album I don't know if this was on that album because I had it. This was actually, I had an E, it was a three song EP and it had this song and Sheena is a punk rocker. And I think a longer version of Pet Cemetery on it. And the song itself appeared on the album Brain Drain. Okay. It was also released later in 89. I think that's their second to last album they ever released. It's definitely mellow by Ramon standards, isn't it? It's definitely not three chords in the truth, like most of their other songs, you know, 150 beats per minute, that type of thing. But yeah, it is, it's, it's more mainstream sounding. It's definitely, I, I'd actually say it's our most most commercial song they ever did. Oh, for sure. I mean, having a song on the credits of a movie, I think, is the right. epitome of commercialism. And it's also, it's even got keyboards in it, which I'm... Mm. I'm sure they probably weren't big fans of yeah that's unusual for a ramon song all right shall we move on let's go okay so my next choice was release the bats from 1981 by the birthday party great band honest i am not a huge fan of nick cave i know at least here in chicago the goth community is absolutely nuts about nick cave he's just all right in my book but this song was just is such a fun song mm-hmm. it's chaos the, the song is is chaos the single was produced by nick lanay 
who also produced the NXS album, The Swing. He's yep. actually very, very uh, well-known music producer. Mm-hmm. And Nick Cave was big in Australia uh, before he, you know, got any airplay over here. So I, I felt felt like the song warranted some airplay. You know what I mean? Well, I myself, I enjoy Nick Cave. He can be very, very hit or miss. You know, he's one of these guys and you get one of his albums. You never really know quite exactly what you're walking into, but he's he's almost like the gothic Frank Sinatra. Ooh. He's sort of got that crooner vibe going on in a weird sort of way. I like that. I like that. That suits him. And, you know, he did sing at Michael Hutchins's funeral. Yes, I was. I didn't know that. Were they friends or? Yes. Yes, they were. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. It must have been interesting to be in the same room with those two. Right. Okay, what's your next song? My next song is from Concrete Blonde and their 1990 album, Bloodletting. And the song is called Bloodletting, the Vampire Song. Which, if you don't know, it's about an interview with a vampire. Oh, I see. Now, I wasn't aware that it would directly correlated to the... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The Anne Rice novel. The whole album, was. it says inspired by the writings of Anne Rice. But she, was, it was, she had read an interview with a vampire on their 89 tour. And then they went and, you know, it inspired this album. I had this album in high school. I do remember this song and, and Joey and, you know, a few of the other songs, Joey was the one that I think got the big airplay, Mm -hmm. but in listening to this again, for the first time since 91, it strikes me, this is a strip tease. This is the kind of song that somebody could do like a burlesque act to. I I could totally see that too. Once you said that, I was like, you know, she's right. (laughs) I absolutely love Jeanette Napolitano's voice though. Am I saying your name right? Jeanette, Jonette. Johnette. I think it's Johnette. I'm not Johnette. really sure. I, I want to make sure that I'm clear and I'm saying Johnette and not Jeanette, right? Because it's it's J-O-H-N-E-T-T-E. But she's just got the most beautiful, deep contralto. Oh, totally. She's got the raspy, just, mm. you know. Mm. I, I, I love it. And she's also a very talented bassist, too, and songwriter. Yes, uh, you know, Concrete Mon themselves is one of the most criminally underrated bands in history. How more people aren't into them has always just puzzled me. It's something I lay in bed and awake at night and wonder about. But this is a fantastic album. I think a lot of people have gotten disappointed by it because they hear that whole interview with the vampire thing. And the, it's not a concept album and it's not solely about that book, but there's you. You listen to the whole album, you can definitely hear some influences from that novel and Anne Rice herself 
and the songs. Such a great album. Speaking of vampires, my next song is the 1979 classic, Bella Lugosi's Dead by Bauhaus. White on white trash, you sound like cakes, back on the rack. Bella Lugosi's dead, the bats have left the bell tower. The victims have been bled, red velvet lines, the black box. Bella Lugosi's dead. This is kind of like Ghostbusters. You can't not mention it on a, you know, a show like this. And, you know, you cannot go to a goth club (laughs) without them playing this song. It's like nine plus minutes long. Many critics actually consider this to be the first goth record. I've, I've seen that debate many, many a time. Right. Now, you mentioned the first American goth was um, 45 Grave. Correct. Bauhaus being British. British. Yeah. You know, this is one, though, that like all of the goth dance clubs, this song comes on. Everybody is on the dance floor painting invisible spider webs with their hands. You know, I. I think the goth crowd is getting tired of this one, to be honest with you. Not okay. on the song, but it's it, it, it's become a cliche. A little bit, yeah. And yeah. I think a lot of people are kind of going, you know, I don't know. I, 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 I see both sides with that one. There are some people like, please, not again. Mm. Like you said, some people are all sudden out there, but they, you know, making the spider webs in the air. And of course, then your next song, speaking of goth clubs, is another one that they tend to play. It's Lullaby by The Cure. there's definitely some hidden hidden meaning going on this song i'm not 100 sure you know at face value i always i always thought it was based on a nursery rhyme or something myself right on candy striped legs the spider-man comes softly through the shadow of the evening sun stealing past the windows of the blissfully dead looking for the victim shivering in bed so this is off of the 1989 album disintegration and if you were to ask me to list the albums that quite literally changed my life disintegration would be right up there me too yeah 
I was listening to it today when I was out running my errands. This is why I could never, ever get sick of that album the whole thing. You know, you and I had chatted about this and I was speculating that this actually might be about a child being molested, which it kind of shows you, I think, where my, my mind is. But you set me straight on that. And you told me that Robert Smith has actually said it's about something very specific. At its core, it's, it's about clearly about anxiety if you sit back and look at it. But Lawrence Tolhurst, who was the found, co-founder of The Cure, along with Robert Smith, during the recording sessions of Disintegration, he had some serious drug and alcohol issues, and they kind of came to a head during that era. And it, it, it's the band, he would, Law would wake up and start drinking immediately and be smashed drunk by four or five in the afternoon. And the Cure's bass player, Simon Gallup, was beginning to pick on him a whole lot. You know, as soon as, soon as Law would get drunk to the point where he couldn't defend himself, Simon would start him with his antics and pick on him all night. I, I, I think I'm pretty sure Lullaby was definitely inspired by all of that going on. But either way, you know, they went on the fire lull from the band right there at the tail end of recording Disintegration because they quickly realized that if they took him out on tour, he was going to end up dead. You know, it was going to be a situation where, you know, Cure member found dead in a hotel room. Right. Or Robert has even said it was going to be a situation where Simon was going to have killed Lowell and he was going to be in prison and Lowell was going to be dead. So they decided to, you know, get him out of there. And of course, Lowell was pretty upset about it for a few years. But then even he says now in hindsight that they were right and they did the right thing and saved his life. The whole band was doing a lot of drugs and alcohol at the time. And I think this kind of calmed that down for the whole band. You know, I think they all kind of sat back and realized where they were headed and what they were going to, you know, what was going to happen if they continued on with it. Yeah. Okay. Well, so we go from The Cure to their contemporaries, Susie and the Banshees, and their 1981 song, Spellbound. So that's a classic too. That that is a classic, and I Trey, I think that might have ended up on your list had I not taken it first. I suspect I was watching to see what Banshee song <laughs> because you could literally put their whole catalog in this show, and it, it it's gonna fit. I mean, well, they're coming out with that new mm-hmm. October compilation album that's going to be like spooky themed songs, it's right? They're darker songs from the entire their entire catalog curated by Susie herself. That's very cool. Yeah. Spellbound though is a classic. Now I can't say the guitarist name. I think it's like John Miguel. I think it's the Giac. <laughs> okay. I-, I knew somebody with that last name and he pronounced it Magooch. <laughs> it could be. I don't know. I think he was Irish and that would fit that. Okay. But anyway, the guitarist whose name you just stated, John Miguel. 
but he was named to Mojo Magazine's 100 Greatest Guitarists of All Time in 2006, specifically for this song. Really? I didn't, I never saw that. That's pretty cool. Yes, yes. And it's, it's not hard to hear why, you know, and then he's got like a 12 string acoustic going on mm-hmm. as well. The whole album that this is on, Juju, it was really an amazing album. It was a shift for Susie. It was very dark. And she took on a lot of very heavy themes. Uh, This song in particular, it can be open to interpretation. According to You Discover Music, it can be read as paranormal horror, a depiction of child abuse, a comment on conformity, or on the hypocrisy of religious figures. Not bubblegum music by any stretch of the imagination. Well, if you know what I know about both of these bands, and especially their friendship, I think the answer is a whole heck of a lot easier. Okay, tell me, tell me, tell me. Robert Smith of The Cure, who wound up joining the band because of, however you want to say his name, the Giuch, however you said it, abruptly quit the band, and The Cure were opening for the Banshees at the time, so Robert joined the band, you know, just as a guitar player for the rest of the tour. But Robert himself who was good friends with Steve Severin, who was a Banshee's bassist. They were both big horror movie fans. And if you sit back and look at this song, I think it was clearly inspired by The Exorcist. Oh, definitely. There's definitely. Yeah, I don't think, but I I had a post on Facebook about this, about, I think it was this time last year, actually, where I pointed that out. So many people came along and went, man, that is, you know, you were so right with that. I'd never noticed that. But they would spend their evenings in their tour buses after shows watching horror movies. I think that shows in a lot of the Banshees music. Definitely. But especially around this period. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's probably when uh, The Exorcist would have went, first went to VHS, too. Oh. You know, I'm sure one of them was and like, hey, look, The Exorcist, we'll get that right. And yeah. And they went on the bus and watched it. Yeah, you're right. So you picked a Susie in the Banshees song, too, didn't you? And it's from their 1988 album, Peep Show. The song is called The Killing Jar. This is actually the second single from the album. It was a moderate hit for the band. Now, I don't actually, I I tried to find what Susie Sue said inspired the lyrics by this song, but all she's ever said was, uh, you know how people will go out bug collecting and they'll catch bugs in jars of formaldehyde and kill them? She says that's what inspired the song. It's worth noting, back to what we were just saying about Susie and the Banshees and the Cure and horror movies, that there have been several horror movies over the years where there was a killer killing people with some inhalant or another. 
And there actually was a movie called The Killing Jar that came later, I think. I was, yeah, that came out like 92 or 93. I was I was getting ready to bring that up. You beat me to it there. Oh, sorry. It, it, it's, no, it's fine. I, I love it when you do that. I think it sort of adds to the... But uh, yeah, I was going to bring that. It's not the best movie in the world. I was trying to find it and watch it before we did this. And I, wasn't, I couldn't find it on YouTube or a way I could watch it for free. Oh. So I said, hell, the H- HBO and Cinemax ran that one a lot, circa 1994-95. was a young boy, wasn't it? Did you ever see it? No, I can't say that. I. It's I'm... a young boy doing it in the movie. But again, great dark song about death. Mm. We're kind of on a roll with that here. Yeah, and now we're going to go from The Killing Jar to The Killing Moon. is my favorite Bunnyman song from 1984 the album ocean rain i don't know that it's specifically about anything that is dark or murderous necessarily other than the title the killing moon as you said to me when we were discussing this it's kind of a love story for you isn't it i feel that way i i I, this song this is one of those songs it could be taken several ways and you wouldn't be wrong with your assumption it, I mean, you could take it as a vampire singing to totally singing to a woman, though. I mean, there, there's, you know. I think the fact that it is open to interpretation and that they haven't come out and said it's about X, I think, is what makes it so interesting. One of the reasons I chose it is because it is from the opening scene of the movie Donnie Darko, which I yes. love. Great movie absolutely amazing movie and you know what else i just recently learned trey that i didn't know the chords for the killing moon were based off of bowie's space oddity but backwards that's another one that you've you've dug up that i would have never known in a million years you're really good at getting these obscure facts about these songs out there i i i do research i'm a professor that's what i do (laughs) but very cool and it really does i think contribute to the like dramatic tension of the song Ooh, it just i hear the opening notes and i just i get the chills and the first time i saw echo and the bunnymen live those opening mandolin type notes i mean they're guitar but i mean it sounds kind of like a mandolin the whole crowd went bonkers i mean just everybody you just heard like a giant scream 
from the entire crowd. It was so cool. Econi Bunnymen is a great band. They're truly one of the, I'd say, definitive 80s bands. And, and they're one of the ones that sort of straddle alternative rock and new wave and, you mm -hmm. know, did it very well. And one of the only bands that I would get COVID for. Yeah, I was going to say, you just recently saw them and had quite the experience at the concert, didn't you? I did. It was good. It was very good. All right. So what's your next song, Trey? My song is Skin by Oingo Boingo, which is included on the soundtrack of the 1995 Barker film Nightbreed. interesting thing about this song is it did not itself appear in the movie okay that's what i was wondering because i own nightbreed i love it it's one of my favorite horror movies if you can classify it as that i don't remember this song in that movie at all Lori. that's because it appears in the movie as a country song you're kidding oh oh man now the unfortunate thing is is that it's nowhere on youtube or anywhere well i've got the dvd so guess what i'm doing when we're done tonight I'm not exactly sure where exactly it is. And it's been a long time since I've seen that movie. It is a great movie. I remember in 91 when HBO was running it. And I came into it midway through one night. I was like, what in the hell is this oddness here? Oh, it's it, it's an amazing movie. The version of the movie was done by a singer called Michael Stanton. Okay. He himself, I couldn't find nothing, not much info about. Probably another one of those session musicians like we were talking about. I don't know. It's one of, you know, it's a mystery, but uh, Boingo Boingo re-recorded the song and put it on their uh, 1990 album, Dark at the end of, end of the Tunnel. And it's, you know, we should note here that Danny Elfman did score the movie and wrote all the music for the film. So this was right around the time that he was starting to get into movie soundtracks. Yeah, well, he had done Batman the year mm -hmm. before, which I think that's a movie that sort of put him on the map. And then also in 1990, he did Edward Hands, which, mm -hmm. you know, it's another classic score there, if you ask me. Yeah, I mean, Dan Danny Elfman, I think, is probably best known now for his movie soundtracks and his scores. He has a very distinct, Pee-wee's Big Adventure is another one he did. He's always had that, so yes, he's, I, I like the way he's always kind of got that Western guitar twang, yeah. a lot of his scores. Yes. And it's very subtle, though. Yes. And, and if I'm not mistaken, Dark at the End of the Tunnel, that was that was kind of their farewell album almost, wasn't sort of. it? I they did do one more album past that, but this was, I think things were 
I don't think that I know the band was sort of not getting along very well at this point because Danny was wanting to go off and do the film score thing. And, you know, they were breaking up and. Well, they started off doing film scores. I mean, the mystic nights of the Oingo Boingo. Exactly. That's how the band became the B. Right. Exactly. It was uh, they were created for was it Danny's brother's film? I was going to say it was Danny Elfman's older brother, whose name I just completely forgot. It's either Richard or Robert. It begins with an R. I think it's Richard. It's Richard. Richard Elfman. There you go. Okay. And yeah, so I mean, that they started off doing that. And then, you know, some of the band have done some side projects that have involved movie soundtracks. Vatos, Johnny Vatos Hernandez, the drummer, went on to play with Tito and Tarantula, who did a lot of the soundtrack for From Dusk Till Dawn. And they actually appear in the movie From Dusk Till Dawn. I had no idea he was involved in that. That's a great movie, too. Yeah, he's he's the drummer in the 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 band in the strip joint. Oh wow! How did I not? How did I not notice? I'm well, a, I feel like I'm one of the few Oingo Boingo fans walking around on the planet because so many people are like, "Who?" Yeah, and I go weird science, and I go, "Oh yeah, that band." Yeah, so I'm really happy, Trey, that you chose a song other than Dead Man's Party. I also chose a song other than Dead Man's Party. I feel like Dead Man's Party ends up on everybody's Halloween list. It's very well known. It's from the movie Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield. And it really, it it is a classic song this time of year, but it is not the only Oingo Boingo song that like hits all these boxes that we're talking about for this list. So I chose another song off of that album from 1985, that album being Dead Man's Party, I chose No One Lives Forever. was heavily featured in the texas chainsaw massacre part two see now i didn't know that i've never seen that the whole soundtrack of that movie was all irs bands so concrete blonde is on it i think there's two each from wingo boingo and concrete blonde really okay i see now i didn't know that a lot of oingo boingo stuff so being that they're from southern california Mm -hmm. very heavily influenced by mexican culture oh for sure there were several mexicans in the band Yes, including Vatos Hernandez that we just mentioned. But yeah, you're right. There are a few. And and so their heritage and their music kind of influenced them in a bit of a way. And, you know, like the themes of Dia de los Muertos and all that Mm -hmm. stuff, I think kind of creeps into some of their music. I love No One Lives Forever. It's got kind of a, particularly with the keyboard, it's got kind of a like ghoulish almost 
Adam's family-ish kind of sound to it. The lyrics though, the whole thing is about, you know, you're going to die eventually. So, you know, live your life, enjoy it, drink a toast and down the cup, drink to bones that turn to dust. Have you actually seen the movie? Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2? Mm-hmm. I have not. It's played during basically the deaths of what you would call two yuppies at the beginning of the movie. And I think it just totally suits that. There's no way they didn't take that song based on these two characters that come to their untimely end right there. It's almost it's almost the intro of the movie. It's about five minutes in. So, you know what? I found out last night, Trey, that I did not know. Speaking of the album Dead Man's Party, did you know they released a 2021 remaster? No, I had no idea. I didn't either. And there's some bonus tracks on it that I do not have. So I, I ordered they it. Were, I'm actually kind of surprised to hear that because I know they, well, they kind of, a few of them got together and played together recently, didn't they, with Danny? Mm-hmm. I don't know about with Danny. Danny played some Oingo Boingo songs at Coachella. Right, right. But there is a, a Facebook page, former Oingo Boingo members, and that's how they're billing themselves. Yeah, I was, I was aware of that. Yeah, but I, I wasn't aware they had played with Danny. If so, that's amazing. Maybe we'll see a get, you know, the band get back together for a tour. Maybe. Well, Danny says his hearing is so damaged. He just doesn't ever want to do rock music again. Well, and that was one of his reasonings behind breaking up Oingo Boingo. But I'm surprised that I, I'm going to have to look into that because I know there was a lot of bad blood. Yeah. When they went their separate ways. And uh, that's very cool to hear. Yeah. Okay, so I actually picked two in a row here. My next song, Every Day is Halloween by Ministry. came out in 1984 i didn't hear it until 1988 that was the same story here was it in the beer commercials i had well whenever they put out that 12 inch singles collection well that was 88 too yeah mm-hmm. i brought that saw it in the store snatched it off the shelves because i was already a ministry fan and mm-hmm. so at least here in chicago It was being used in commercials for old style special dry beer. And it was all over the radio. It was all over the television. It was the the 12 inch remix. It wasn't the, the, the single version. And it's interesting to me because by 88, Al was getting away. Al from ministry was getting away from this kind of a techno dance sound Mm -hmm. and was going to like more harder industrial. Yeah. On one hand, I bet it, probably graded on him that you know everybody was like oh yeah ministry every day is halloween but on the other hand he got paid very well mm-hmm. so my my big association with this song though 
I mentioned in a previous episode that my friends and I would take the train into the city on the weekends mm-hmm. and we would hit up what eventually came to be called the alternative shopping district where we had the 99th floor, the alley, wax tracks, all of those shops. And my buddy, Sean, who is still to this day, a very, very dear friend. I'm happy that we've stayed close all these years, but Sean was all gothed out. I was mildly gothed out. I mean, not, <laughs> not, not like too extensively, but some guy, uh, yuppie started yelling at us and we were in the intersection of Clark and Belmont started yelling at us, go home freaks. Every day is Halloween. And Sean just turned to him and Sean's pretty mild mannered and just started screaming at him something like, fuck you, bitch. Oh, wow. I work at, I work at a bank and I was just completely, completely floored. But yeah, we had uh, yuppies yelling at us. That's happened to me a million times over the course of my life. Right, right. And I've certainly heard that's not Halloween one before myself. Well, and you know, what's ironic, really, if you listen to the lyrics of this song, I dress this way just to keep them at bay because mm-hmm. Halloween is every day. Right. Why can't I live my life for me? I tell you, the question I have is, did ministry themselves make that video that's on YouTube with all the old school cartoons? Or did a fan do that? And they just kind of went with it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's a fan video or not. I don't remember an official video release for this one. I didn't either back then. And it seems like 120 minutes for sure would have played it had there been one. Right. Hey, speaking of ministry, you picked a ministry song too, didn't you? Psalm 69, which is sometimes subtitled The Way to Succeed and The Way to Suck Eggs. Depending upon which, which version of it you pick up. I've even seen others that have Keanu. As the, as the subtitle, I don't know what was going on there with that. Kiana is something with the Bible. Do you want to name the song? Oh, the, the song is called Scarecrow. I actually don't have any clue what this song is about. I believe it's about corporate greed. I, you know, I don't either. This is one of the deep album tracks that I'd forgotten about until you mentioned it. Now, you did mention Psalm 69, The Way to Success and The Way to Suck Eggs. Mm -hmm. That's an Aleister Crowley reference. Yeah. And actually, there's a lot of references to Aleister Crowley Mm -hmm. on this album. So for our listeners who might not be familiar, Aleister Crowley was an occultist in the early 1900s, and he branded himself the beast or the wickedest man alive. He founded 
it was either OTO or Golden Dawn. There's two different magical societies. There's one that he founded. There's one that he's a member of. I think it was Golden Dawn was one he founded. It might have been, yeah. There's a lot of occult type references that are taken directly from Crowley's writings in this album by Ministry. Right. There's a whole lot of, well, there's a whole lot of bands we could name here. Influenced by Crowley? Yeah. What is wrong with me tonight? Well, I mean, you could even argue the Beatles were influenced by Crowley. I mean, they put Alistair Crowley's picture as one of the members of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band on the cover. There's another goth band from England called Fields of the Nephilim that referenced Alistair Crowley a lot in his whole work and their work. There's also, I don't know if you've heard of Ghost. Yes. They're a band from Sweden. and I, I would call them a shock rock band, but their latest single, Little Sunshine, is a reference to Aleister Crowley also. Is, is that the band that did that, like, uh, Beelzebub and, and, like, all the different, is that Ghost? I think so. Oh. They do have a song where somebody's chanting chant Beelzebub there at the beginning of it. Yeah, Asmodeus. Yeah, 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 that is close. okay. Yeah, so I can see why they would, would be into Aleister Crowley. I was actually listening to another podcast about a year ago, and they did a show on Aleister Crowley. Uh-huh. And one of the hosts is a, it's a male-female duo, and the male host, he thinks that Aleister Crowley was probably like the world's first troll. And he was really just messing with people and just, you know, just created this persona and just, and just ran with it. I can see it. You know, when he said that, I was like, you know, you might be onto something there. And he's, you know, he was like, of course, this is all speculation, but if you, you look back on it and, you know, it's for sure. He was at least goofing around a little. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Hey, now speaking of, the Wickedest Man Alive, your last song on the list, Troy, Troy, your last song on the list, Trey. So you're doing it now, too. <laughs> yeah, I know your name. I know who you are. But speaking of The Wickedest Man Alive, Trey, your last song on the list. Is Warlock by Skinny Puppy, which is from their 1989 album, Rabies. was produced by al jorgensen from ministry is that why you put these in that order did you i was putting like the more industrialish stuff together uh i didn't know that it was produced by al but i'm not surprised now there's a whole lot to say about this song obviously it's got the uh charles manson samples in the in the, over the course of the song it does it's never appeared to me that the song is directly about charles manson 
well, I don't know that you could say it's about anything really. I mean, it's, um, it, it's very much in the industrial sampling kind of cut and paste mix up, you know, sound samples. They also sampled Helter Skelter by the Beatles in there too. Right. Right. Which Charles Manson himself was known to be a fan of that song. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they have the movie and the novel Helter Skelter. The reason I picked this song is because of the video. Oh yeah, which was immediately banned everywhere. It was a montage from horror films, wasn't it? Nothing but gory, gory, gory scenes from all kinds of mainstream and obscure horror movies. I remember seeing it sometimes on the uh, the screens at the goth clubs. They would play oh, this really? one for yeah. the video. Yeah, yeah, the song itself. I had this in my collection. When you mentioned it, I actually pulled it out of my collection. So I did have it. I didn't really get into Skinny Puppy as much as many of my friends did. For me? Are you? Okay. (laughs) All right. My association with Skinny Puppy is always going to be the fact that they they had a brief appearance in the Greg Araki film, The Doom Generation. Yes. As like kind of a, a gang of thugs. Right. But, you know, going back to this whole sampling kind of culture and then go this this is going back to al jorgensen from ministry as well who you mentioned produced this besides crowley another big influence on al and ministry and i think on industrial music was william s burroughs no for sure burroughs was an advocate of the what he called the cut up writing style right where he would take his manuscripts and literally cut them into pieces and rearrange pieces and create something new. And mm-hmm. like reading Naked Lunch, there's a couple places where it's like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense where you can almost see maybe where the cuts originally were. And then he took that like a step further and started using this kind of thing almost as, I guess for lack of a better word, an oracle, cutting and pasting, not just his work, but other people's work. And what you end up with is like supposed to be guidance. It's supposed to tell you, you know, what it is that you're, you're doing. I mean, I guess it's not really any different than, you know, some people they'll open the Bible to a random Bible verse and they'll say, that's the verse that's supposed to guide you. It's the same kind of concept, the whole Jungian idea of synchronicity, but I think it's criminally understated how much of an influence Burroughs had on not just industrial music, but I would say pop music in general with the whole sample and remix culture. He was really the godfather of that mentality. That's another damn interesting observation from you there, Laurie. That that's I'm on a roll. <laughs> that's something I'm going. For. Wow, that's you. You just laid one on us. Yeah, well, you that's know. something I'm gonna be up on. Going, you know what? Okay. Thinking about Burroughs. Uh, yeah, and just everything you just said. You know, no, skinny, cool. pup, skinny puppy obviously was very. If you know their music, you know they are famous for their horror movie samples. Mm-hmm. They've never really said what much of their music about. Some of it's clearly, you know, pro animal rights and pro anti war. Mm-hmm. Other than that, it's anyone's guess what on earth they're singing about. You know, uh, when they caught Jeffrey Dahmer, they found uh, skinny puppy cassettes in his... Uh, Did they really? Uh, yes. And I think it was Clot DVA was another industrial band. He had some of their albums. Really? But fans have come forward over the years and said that in 1990, at Skinny Puppy's Milwaukee 
concert on their uh, Two Dark Park tour that he was in the audience, definitely kind of wow, kind of wandering around strangely. And people say they remembered him because he was just so out of place and weird, you know, with all the goss and there's Jeffrey Dahmer standing there. Wow. So people remembered him. So that brings our spooky Halloween songs episode to an end. Now, in two weeks, we're planning something very special, aren't we, Trey? We certainly are. We are planning a special episode about the soundtracks for John Hughes films. A lot of classics, right? Pretty in Pink, uh, Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Some of the more popular uh, soundtracks of the 80s were from John Hughes films, especially Pretty in Pink. Yes. So Trey and I are going to pick our favorite songs as featured in John Hughes films. So we hope you'll listen in two weeks. Thank you for tuning in. Goodbye from me. Thanks for listening, everybody. You guys have a great two weeks. And happy Halloween. Yes. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.